Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, Choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Larry Jewett. Did I do that right? Did I hit the right button? Is this thing working? Can anybody you, hear me? Do you hear that? that what, what is that strange voice on the other uh, on the other end, Chris? Uh, that doesn't sound like you. It isn't me, and it's not you, Jeff. So this is a rather uh, rather unusual opening for the Coin World Podcast. But today, we're very lucky to be talking again with our colleague, Larry Jewett. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate this opportunity. I'm just kind of getting my uh, bearings here a little bit on some of this stuff. You guys have been doing this now for uh, so long. And just for me, you hand me this control and I don't know what to do with it. It's just part of this new thing, I guess. But just uh, we had so much fun last time and I really learned so much from you guys. I really wanted to get back. And I know you didn't really expect me to sneak into the studio on you, but I'm, I'm here and I hope you have some time for me today. Of course. We loved our last conversation. We're delighted to talk. For those listeners who may recall, just a few episodes ago, Larry turned the tables on Chris and I, and instead of Chris and I asking all the questions, Larry put us under the heat lamp and fired away at us. So we had so much fun doing that, and apparently he had so much fun, that we're going to try that again. And hopefully you can come along and learn from our experiences, our mistakes, and things that we have to say. And we should remind you that send us a question you have. We have one in the queue. We're waiting for several. So we have uh, enough to tackle this as a a question only episode. Do send those to us. Email us. Contact information is in the show notes. But now I think it's time we face the firing squad, as it were. Well, I think I'm going to go kind of easy on you guys today. I mean, you were so good to me last time and I kind of just came out of left field on a lot of things. But you know, the, the position I have and still learning and I'm learning more. I'm a few more weeks into it than when the last time we talked and, and reading up on some things and getting uh, new information all the time. And I just can't help but think whenever I have this as a term of conversation for people who are not familiar with the uh, numismatic terms or maybe not as familiar with coins and currency as they could be, some of these folks, I mean, regardless of their age, they're expressing a little bit of an interest in this. And, and I think it's really neat. I really uh, it really helped me to uh, bond some friendships I already have. So I want you to go back in time, if you would, for me here, because Ooh, you can go back right away the here. Time machine. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's it's not the Twilight Zone, but close enough. You know, I had listeners who really, really attuned heard me talk about some car issues a few months ago. I actually had car issues again recently. So I am now looking for a DeLorean. We'll get a DeLorean so we can go back in time. Well, I happen to have a used flux capacitor if you need one, so <laughs> you can go ahead and have that ready to go. So if you're going back in time, let's just put you in that DeLorean and take you back to when you first decided you wanted to get serious about numismatics and become a coin collector. And so when you were first starting out, 
Can you recall what the best piece of advice you got and who gave it to you? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I'm going to take this first because I'm older than Chris, and that was a, a longer time ago. than. Wait, you are? <laughs> By quite a bit. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons, I, I don't want to say this question is problematic, but for me, I didn't have the traditional path that I wish I could have had, that I know so many people in the hobby have had. I sat down at the kitchen table with my dad and we sorted wheat scents, and at some point, I saw at the local library, good old Daniel Boone branch of the St. Louis County Library, that they had a magazine called Coin World. So I started reading Coin World. And one of the things that I looked forward to every issue was the Found and Rolls column by Bill O'Rourke. And that was if I can pinpoint on any one thing that I gravitated toward, it was that. And I took something that he was doing, which was going to banks and doing roll hunting, looking for silver half dollars and sort of went crazy with it. And, and my dad took me to banks all over and we got thousands of dollars of half dollars and searched through them and didn't really find much in there. Certainly nothing like what I saw in Bill's column. So, you know, I wasn't part of a club. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a mentor, uh, so to speak. So I really just had coin world and I can't really pinpoint one key thing that sort of guided my collecting journey other than, you know, I read Western and Eastern Treasures, which I've mentioned before, and there was a great column in there by, I think, Mark Parker or something, and people would send in looking for answers of things they found while metal detecting. And so I learned the value of research from that and having a broad base of knowledge. And so unfortunately, I can't really give you one pithy quip or quote as far as a thing that I learned from early on. Now, if you Fast forward to when I joined Coin World, which was in the summer of 2003 as an intern. I learned so much then. You know, when I was working at Walgreens in high school and college, and people, oh, that's the coin guy. You know, he's, I would look through the drawers of all the different people. The, you know, they'd bring their cashier's drawer at the end of the night, and I'd look through there and buy whatever was interesting. And so they knew me as the quote unquote coin guy. Well, then I, I walk into coin world and, you know, I'm a T-baller in the big leagues. Basically, I learned the world of numismatics that summer just to go from the smallest level of quasi-professional interest to, oh my gosh, here's the big leagues. And, you know, the thing that we always saw and learned from was buy the book before the coin. That's attributed to Aaron Feldman. And certainly as somebody who loves books, I have adhered to that saying from that day forward. What about you, Chris? It's almost scary how well those analogies you just made to T-baller in the big league and, you know, you learn the, the world of numismatics in during your summer internship. It's eerie how accurate or how well those lines describe my own recent experience in the sense that, and Jeff, like you, I don't have traditional numismatic training in the sense that I've never been to the summer seminar, although I would love to go at some right. point. I'm actually hoping in some future summer to 
start to attend a couple of those classes. And plus, I'd love to visit Colorado again. It's a it's a beautiful place, though I've never been to Colorado Springs. Like you, Jeff, I also wasn't really handed a lot of standard numismatic advice. I started reading coin publications, namely Coins, Coinage, and Coin World in the late aughts. My sort of burgeoning interest in coins was something my parents were sort of keen to support. And as stocking stuffers, they would often go to, you know, drugstores or wherever there was a wide selection of magazines. And if there was a coin magazine, they would buy a recent, whatever the recent edition on newsstands was, and then they would put it into my stocking and I'd read it. And then eventually, after a few editions of a couple of different magazines, I decided around 2010-ish, I decided that I wanted to subscribe to Coin World, and I started reading it month to month, particularly the features. Uh, I was a monthly subscriber for a very long time, so I didn't really keep track of the weekly coverage. And again, there isn't really one piece of sort of numismatic advice that jumps immediately out to me, but a lesson that I've absorbed, I guess, from my now two years working professionally in the hobby. Jeff, your use of the word or the phrase uh, quasi-professional, that that describes what I arrived at Coin World with very, very well. So well, again, and, that, and I say that, that resonated strongly with me as well. I say that because, you know, to somebody who's the average person on the street, somebody like me at that time was, oh, I'm a coin guy. And then I turn around and, you know, jump into this arena and you know i'm nobody because you know i I mean i remember my first day in a show as a coin world intern i walk up and i'm go hi who are you and it's wendell wolka you know wendell's a columnist for coin world and numismaticity he's written a couple former podcast guest yes so you realize very quickly that depending on the audience in the room you know you can go from the expert to the guy who knows zero (laughs) you know who knows jack squat because of the composition of the room. That reminds me, one of my favorite professors from college, he's a film studies professor. I gave a couple of lectures in his class when he found out I was a coin collector and that I knew a little bit about Wild West history because it was a spaghetti westerns film course that I was taking. He asked me to give a couple of of talks on it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, He asked me to give a couple of lectures on numismatics, specifically like the coins of the Wild West, which I took as an opportunity really just to talk about what would the coins, tokens, notes, you know, other monetary implements that people would have used, you know, what did those things look like and what role does money play in spaghetti westerns and westerns as a genre? And it was a wonderful talk. And I remember one of the times that I gave it a couple of different years over my my four years at Trinity. And I remember at the beginning of one of them, he, the professor looks at me and goes, you know, Chris is an authority on this stuff. He's an authority on coins. And I gently and politely corrected him because it was very flattering for someone to say that. But I gently correct, uh, corrected him and said, basically, I am an authority compared to people who don't know much about this. And it's understandable that a lot of people don't know much about numismatics, but you know, it says something about one's level of professionalism when you get to a point when you can distinguish between a faux expert and a real expert. Like, you need to learn a certain amount about any given field before you can tell the difference between someone like me and someone like Hugh David Bowers. Like, ostensibly, he and I both know a great deal about coins. He knows infinitely more about coins than I may ever know. But to the uninitiated, he and I look like two people who just really like coins and are really interested in the history of money. But there are worlds of difference between Bowers and I, right? And so 
I think that you have to gain a certain level of experience before you can even appreciate the gulf of knowledge and experience between a true professional and someone like me who is trying to become a true professional. So as far as a piece of advice, Larry, I realize that this has gone a little bit um, afield of your original question. But as far as a piece of advice, I think just read as much as you can and go to as many shows as you can. Cultivate numismatic experiences and open yourself up to learning from them. And also just ask questions like they say there's no such thing as a dumb question. And I think I generally adhere to that philosophy. But, you know, show up, pay attention and ask questions. That's the best way to learn anything. And that I think that applies to numismatics as much as any other area of life. Amen. I'm hearing a lot of the uh, consistent messaging on reading. And I want to come back to that. But I also want to take off on your answer regarding your film class and what I think numismatics has done and can do for a lot of people is open doors in so many places that you may not have realized that that could open doors like you had your example in college and i'm i'm sure with the nature of the uh, of the hobby itself and all the varieties and the historical values and things like that that being the coin guy as jeff call yourself and and your walgreens days being familiar with the coins has certainly given you plenty of opportunities to Put a little bit of a spin on any conversation that you have and educate people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, the one of the, I don't want to say frightening things, but I don't have cable. I don't watch much TV. Uh, if I do, it's a movie that I put in the DVD player. I'm not very advanced technologically as far as Netflix and all this and that stuff. But back when I did, I would sit there and watch Jeopardy. And I was amazed at things I knew answers to the questions or questions to the answers, as it were, that I had encountered because of numismatics and, and specifically world coinage, because, you know, we see a lot of coins from all over Europe, all over Israel, Japan, all over, just all over the world. And you use these objects as learning tools. And then you can find yourself in a situation where somebody's talking about World War II, or, I mean, I've written about World War II, 9-11, uh, the Titanic, you know, some important battles in ancient times times to modern day. And all of these things have touch points that relate to numismatics one way or the other. Name something that happened in history and we can find a connection, whether it's, you know, the supposed Vlad the Impaler, Dracul, you know, Dracula coins, whether it's paper money that was carried aboard or by a survivor of the Titanic. There's so many things that you can use as springboards. I like to say the hobby is, you know, really is the intersection of art, history, politics, culture, geography, economics. It's all these disciplines just rolled up into one. And that's why there's a lifetime of learning to be had in there. And it changes the way you look at the world pretty fun, or at least a very narrow part of the world pretty fundamentally. I mean, I've we've brought this quote up on the podcast a number of times. One of our previous guests, Michael O'Malley, describes money. And, and I, I imagine he's he's drawing from a number of other historians as well. But people don't really think consciously about the money in their pockets. That's something when we've interviewed obsolete banknote experts, something that I've tried to ask them is, how were the people who handled these notes thinking about them? Because there's a pretty profound psychological impact that the instability of obsolete notes had on their users. I mean, Herman Melville had a pretty famous story called The Confidence Man that was all about a person trying to pass fake banknotes. And Herman Melville may not have achieved a great degree of, of recognition or success in his own lifetime, 
but he's in sort of the pantheon of great American authors. And so that he was thinking about money in a particular way, and he understood money as having a, a specific impact on the people using the money and that the people were sort of mapping their own ideas, hopes, dreams, etc., onto the money, even as the money's stability shaped their lives. The relationship of human beings to money is really interesting. And I think numismatics forces viewers to look at the money that we use day to day and the money that people have used historically and start to ask a lot of interesting questions about what not only the symbols on the coins themselves mean, but what the coins as mediums of exchange meant to the people who handled them. And that, to me, is a great reason to study numismatics because it reveals a lot of hidden truths about a pretty mundane aspect of our daily lives and one that people don't really think about. And especially in an age when cash use is declining and electronic payments are becoming more and more the norm, the rise of electronic payments poses a series of what I think are fairly profound questions about the nature of money. And that's not that's not a hot take, but I do think that in posing those questions, that can act as a Rorschach test that different people read their feelings about a whole range of different things onto. And so trying to map that out is fascinating to me. There's rich earth to till in, in those places. Definitely so. Now, Jeff, I mean, when we talked about history, it's that's very obvious because of, you know, the different things that here. But the thing that always struck me is art. And so consequently, with what's going on with the National Basketball Hall of Fame coins, to keep that Massachusetts connection going here, What's your take on colorizing the coins? I know, Jeff, and with your being on world coins, you've seen colorized coins for some time, but it seems like the uh, U.S. folks are kind of like on the fence about this. I wouldn't say they're on the fence. I would say they're predominantly against it. And based on the letters and the response we've received to stories in social media, you know, the, the interaction from users of social media that when we post a story about it, the comments they make and the letters that we receive have generally been overwhelmingly against it. And part of me understands that, you know, this is a U.S. coin and it's, you know, they want something august and serious and important and I would argue that, and especially look at it through the lens of uh, reaction to various athletes who say or do not say various statements that raise the ire of fans or no longer fans. You know, America, for better or worse, is a country today and in the last 30 years that has put athletes up on a pedestal and made them a focus of the culture that we did not see 50 and 100 years ago. And so our coinage is merely reflecting this aspect of culture, not shaping it. And, you know, similarly, you can look at all the militaristic themes of commemorative coins of the last 20 years, 25 years, and it's no secret or it's no surprise then when you you lay that on side by side with the reality that American foreign policy, you know, America is engaged in various skirmishes, battles, wars, and, and so on all over the globe and wielding the military might, it, it's no surprise then it doesn't seem out of place that we are issuing so many coins celebrating so many facets of our military when, you know, that is 
You can get into long discussions about the rights and wrongs and the this and the that of American military spending. I'm not going to debate that, but we do spend an inordinate amount of money on our military, certainly compared to the next, you know, five, 10 countries in the world other than, say, China. And so, you know, that does define us. That is a facet, a fact of, of our being. So it's only natural that our coins would reflect that. I think the color on world coins is common. It's not always geared toward an audience that is um, a traditional collector, but sometimes it is. You can look at, there's some very intriguing things that are being done overseas and elsewhere that I would say are tastefully done. And then there's some things where there's countries where you say the name and you go, people kind of roll their eyes because gosh, there was 300 coins from there last year commemorative. To me, it's a bit much, but that's the, the marvel of the modern minting technology, especially as it relates to design software. You know, we don't have artist sitting there painstakingly creating the design the traditional way where if they mess up, they sort of have to start over or hide the mistake. We have people sitting at a computer drawing designs in a much speedier way that, hey, all of a sudden, instead of working on this design for 13 weeks, I can do a design in three days. And so that means I can do so many more designs in the same amount of time because of the CAD and some of the other software. And then mints can go and, and make coins that they're only doing 500 or a thousand of, or 10,000 in some cases say, and they can do 10 of those versus, Hey, they're going to do two coins this year and they're going to sell a boatload. Well, they can target narrow niches and that's just a facet of the market. There's um the Long Tail is a famous business book that sort of explores that. And I think that idea is brought to life in, in modern minting. I'm not buying the basketball coins, but that's because I'm not a big basketball guy. I'm a baseball guy. If we had come out with six years ago with the 2014 Baseball Hall of Fame coins and they had red stitching on them and white to look like a baseball, that would have been kind of cool. Now, you know... I'd kind of go, hey, can we have one of each? So one that's plain, one that's colorful. You know, it's neat. It's fun. That's what the hobby's supposed to be. There are people out there who make it much more and, you know, wring their hands and woe is me. It's, uh, you know, if you're not having fun, find something else, man, because life's too short. You know, if it bothers you, hey, there's enough out there that, you know, if you don't like the new stuff, great. Then look at classic commems. Look at, you know, look at put together a birth year set of world coins from the year you were born, say 1979 or 19. Well, I'm not going to say yours, but um, <laughs> the hobby is so big. I say it all the time. It's a big tent. Find a way to do it and enjoy it and love it. And if you're not finding that, then, hey, let's keep looking because there's another way to approach it. Color on on coins is, has been around for 20, 30 years. It's not going away. And uh, it's nice that at least the U.S., you know, it, the, the Mint is offering the option for collectors. And ultimately, collectors buy it or they don't buy it. And that's going to help guide the future 
plans of the Mint, because if it's not worth their time and trouble, then they're not going to do it. But there are a lot of people. I mean, I come from a family. I'm from St. Louis. And in St. Louis, baseball is darn near a state religion. And my family, we grew up rooting for the Cardinals. And I still you know, want the Cardinals to win. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan, try to go to a couple games a year, not this year, notwithstanding. I showed that coin to a couple of my aunts and they were like, oh, I want one of those. And okay. Yeah. You know, I got 10 of them, whatever. And, uh, you know, a coin can be for somebody who's not a, a collector who's been building Whitman Boo folders for 30 years. It, it doesn't have to just serve somebody who's putting together a set of graded uh, silver eagles or, you know, somebody who's chasing a, a 20th century and a, a 19th century typeset. It's just an object that has a design, a theme, and can offer something fun and meaningful in a various ways. So, you know, there's no reason to have a coronary about it. If you don't like it, don't buy it. If you do like it or you think somebody else would and, you know, you want to give them a gift, that's, you know, perfect gift item is, uh, hey, this, this is a U.S. coin. Or if it's a world coin, hey, this is a real coin and this is, look at how it was made and isn't this neat. And you plant a seed. Not everyone's going to bear fruit, but you got to be out there planting those seeds. Yeah, I would say, Jeff, that your analysis of the public response to the basketball commemorative coins is pretty accurate. I uh, I wrote a piece covering the public response, and I, I went on to a number of collector forums, and I looked up both the specific response to the basketball coins and responses to previous colorized coins uh, in general. And then when the announcement was made that the 2020 Basketball Hall of Fame commemorative coins were going to be um, colorized, I tried to seek out a comment on that. And it was almost universally negative. There were a handful of people who said, oh, that's kind of cool. I like how they executed the the coloration on the basketball for the, the half dollar. And there were some positive comments, but they were in the minority. And the complaints ranged from people thought that it was sort of unbecoming of U.S. commemorative coins to feature colorization. They felt that they were being, that U.S. commemorative coins are being turned into trinkets. There was a sense of, oh, why are we commemorating basketball with everything else that's going on in the world? And uh, you know, I have a hard time imagining anyone wanting to make a COVID commemorative coin, though that hasn't stopped people from making COVID bars, um, you know, bars. Oh, that were Yeah, there are some some silver. stuff out there that's. <laughs> well, I mean, personally, yeah. I think personally, I think that's a little morbid, but OK. I mean, I guess they wouldn't be striking these things if there wasn't a market for it. Yep. My own personal opinion on the colorization of U.S. coins is I'm ambivalent. I feel like it's inevitable. I mean, so many as you pointed out, Jeff, so many other world mints have already done it. And now that the technology has advanced to the point where it can be done, it can be done fairly tastefully and fairly well. And, you know, and, and I think that a lot of the objections to the basketball commemorative coins are overblown. That's just my view. And like you said, if, if you don't like it, don't don't buy it. But I would also say that trying to commemorate a broader range of themes or a broader range of topics would be valuable because as you point out, Jeff, there are a lot of commemorative coins honoring the United States military accomplishments and setting aside the uh, the morality of U.S. foreign policy. There are a lot of achievements to commemorate and there are a lot of relevant anniversaries that can be commemorated. And also I would point out, and this would make for an interesting, I think could make for an interesting numismatic editorial or at least an interesting angle through which to analyze 
um, U.S. commemorative coin history through, it's an interesting lens to examine the issue through, would be looking at law enforcement commemorative coins in the context of today. I mean, we're embroiled in a massive and profoundly vitriolic debate about the role of law enforcement in our society. And there are quite a few commemorative coins honoring law enforcement. So that's not to take an edit- a position on on the coins themselves, that those are just that's what the United States Mint has produced. But it would be interesting to examine which law enforcement agencies have been commemorated and how they've been commemorated and how you could compare them to military commemorations or commemorating other things. There could be some very interesting arguments and very interesting arguments made and articles written about that particular group of commemorative coins. But in general, as far as, as coloration is concerned, I, I don't have a particularly strong opinion. And to be completely honest, I don't really understand why it elicited as strong a reaction as it did. I know that the cynical interpretation that I, I saw advanced by a number of people on these forums was that these coins were meant to try to appeal to younger people in a broader international market because basketball is very popular internationally and that the Mint was trying to sort of goose its sales figures, which since, as David Ryder stated before Congress back in 2018, you know, the Mint sales numbers have decreased significantly since the 1990s. So the cynical interpretation is that this was a ploy to try to capture a new segment of collectors, but I actually don't know that it's even a cynical interpretation. I mean, numismatics as a discipline needs to try to, and people who work in it professionally need to try to reach a broader audience. And if the Mint and Congress want to try to take the lead on that, I guess they're I guess they're within their rights to do it. So, well, I again, mean, <laughs> as, as, as Jeff pointed out, not every seed blooms. We'll see if the, the basketball coins have their desired effect. But but, but see, this is comes back to the, you know, the reality that there's room for all sorts of products in the market. There are many, many folks who are happy to buy a one ounce silver round celebrating President Trump. We've seen them at shows. We see them sell online. Companies are, are making money selling that and people are having fun buying those pieces. Great. If you don't like that, you don't have to buy it. You talked about tastefully done color. One of the slurs that comes up in regards to this um, development in the U.S. is that, well, the U.S. Mint's going to be like the Canadian Mint now. And that was, you know, the Canadian Mint, Royal Canadian Mint has uh, certainly earned some degree of scorn in the sense that they do produce, as I've mentioned, something like 300 coins a year. They they have, I think they've toned it down a little bit here the last year or two. But even so, most many of their coins have uh, color or crystals or some sort of technology, a holographic thing or whatever. There's some sort of effect or embellishment to it that's added to, it's not just a plain round silver disc. Some They've done sculptural pieces. They've done football shaped stuff, canoe shaped stuff. You can complain about that on one level and, and you're absolutely right that it does challenge the concept of what is a coin and what are coins worth and, and how do they have meaning when there's such an abundance. However, they have been at the vanguard in developing technology, even for circulating coins, but for bullion, they've come out with uh, technology to help reduce and minimize spots on the silver coins, which is, you know, any collector of silver knows, silver bullion knows how vexing that is and can be, you know, they have technology that allows the coin to be scanned and you sort of have an an ID to it, but they put color on circulating coins and we're talking volumes in the millions. Now it's not, you know, they have a population that's one tenth the size of the U S so it's 
you were not, they're not comparable volumes. However, you know, if they're putting out 4 million or 6 million coins into circulation with color on them, as they've done many times, the $2 coin, especially, and, and more so the 25 cent coin, these are things that have a chance to really attract attention and circulation and create that new generation of collectors. Just like so many people in the hobby today, they grew up in a time when you could still find silver in circulation. Wheat cents were still plentiful. There were more things to hunt for and find. And, you know, in the U.S., yes, we have the state quarter program, but there's nothing intrinsically different and valuable. You have to really look to see the designs and that publicity has waned as this, uh, you know, America the Beautiful series has gone on. But when you have color in your pocket change, that'll jump out at you. And that is something that the Royal Canadian Mint has done. And I think uh, to their credit, because they've exported that usage. Uh, They've done coins for Panama. They've done coins for New Zealand. The Royal Australian Mint has done that as well. In fact, they suit each other. The mints suit each other, but, um, you know, fighting over who developed technology and this and that. But but certainly uh, Canada and Australia have, have used color to great effect to get people to notice. And there is an amazing market in Australia for modern stuff, just as modern stuff in the United Kingdom Oh my gosh, the 50 pence coins, the market has gone off the, the rails because people are excited by these new things. And there are folks, I'm in a bunch of collector groups for this, and they talk about, well, hey, I'm, I've collected all this. Maybe I'm going to sell that and go look for some earlier stuff, or maybe I want to go look for earlier stuff in addition to. So it's net positive for the hobby, getting people thinking about and hunting for their coins. That's what we want. And that's what is, I think, rewarding as somebody who does this for a living to see people engaged in and interested in collecting. I kind of can draw a comparison, which is older than you guys, back when Turner tried to colorize classic movies. And Ah. there was a great amount of uproar about that. But what they were doing was obviously taking an existing product and making something. With the colorizing of the new coins, obviously it's not an existing product. It's something new. I can just imagine what kind of furor you'd have if you started to do the Roosevelt dime or or some of these other ones that uh, people are accustomed to seeing without color. So it's just I don't necessarily understand the reluctance to it and I just wonder I keep seeing on the forums about if the mint keeps this up I'm going to stop buying well like you pointed out Jeff there's plenty out there you can always direct yourself a certain way but it just seems like that you can't please everybody and there seems to be a resistance to change no pun intended but there seems to be a fair amount of discouragement. Have you guys ever experienced in your own collecting, in your own numismatic pursuits, have you gotten to the point where you've gotten so discouraged by some kind of activity, some kind of criticism, some kind of uh, something negative happening? I want to make one thing, you know, this is not pie. This is, there's not one pie here and you get the piece means I don't get to have a piece of pie. So, you know, there are non-colorful versions of these coins, right? So, um, that shouldn't let, somebody shouldn't be discouraged that, you know, there, there's a way for them to participate in the collection, collecting the way they want to, you know, uh, discouragement is going to happen. I think the major one for me was going to my first coin show, before 
a first and only coin show before I came to coin world. And, you know, I was, uh, 12 or 14, something like that. I was a rug rat, whatever. You know, I wasn't an adult and I wasn't a toddler, but, and just getting almost nobody to interact. Um, one person was sort of gruff and mean. And it's like, that was definitely discouraging because I didn't have that formal involvement. You know, I didn't know that there was a a coin club that I could attend. My mom was working two jobs. My dad was working crazy hours, especially in the summer because of his line of work. I didn't have anybody to take me to a coin club or, you know, we went to a couple coin shops here and there, but I didn't really get to engage with the developmental side of the hobby. And I went to this show and was all excited And then it was sort of like, oh, okay, this is not really welcoming. And I don't, it obviously didn't turn me off from the hobby, but it was one thing that helps explain sort of why I had limited exposure and my involvement was limited to reading Coin World that I got at the library until sometime around 95 when I got a subscription for Christmas or my birthday or whatever. And our ninety late ninety four, I think it was, because I remember reading about the nineteen ninety five double die Lincoln cent in my subscription to Coin World, and later reading about the state quarter program. That was it. I, there was no summer seminar. There was you know none of this other these other outlets, and so that was that was a big discouragement in my professional life, or since I came to Coin World, and certainly have learned more every week, every day, you accidentally, you make bad purchases. I mean, I, uh, I found out the hard way that catalog values on world coins are not as tight and meaningful as they are in the U.S. And you can certainly, there's no shortage of debate or discussion about the validity of pricing data on U.S. coins, but U.S. coins are traded infinitely higher volume in the U.S. than world coins. And so the the data sets are much more closely aligned with markets realities, whereas with world coins, as great and as groundbreaking as the standard catalog of world coins is, there are problems with pricing that still bedevil it today. If Somebody says, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll be glad to sell these German coins at fifty percent a catalog. What a great deal!" I would go, "Yeah, no, I need to be around twenty percent because, unfortunately, the the pricing on a lot of that is skewed. There's certain British, British Commonwealth, Norway. There's just some countries where you go. I, I mean, I, I can point to there's there's a mid 1960s, I think it was 1950s and 60s, set from Romania and super high catalog. $30 for one coin. Honestly, that's a 5 to $10 coin. It's not a $30 coin. So you learn that the hard way when you buy something at a shop and you just, oh, okay, they wrote down all the catalog information and great, he's going to give me 25% off catalog because I'm buying X amount. And Well, then the reality sets in that when you see it somewhere down the line by uh, offered by a dealer who's more aligned with market realities, you know, they want to sell the coin. How many dealers have you heard say, this ain't a museum, you know, I'm in the business of selling, buying and selling coins. And so that person has it priced realistically and fairly, not that the other person intentionally made a mistake. They're just going with, you know, the simplest tool they know, which is the, you know, there's this 
big mega volume of books, they're not going to go look on eBay. They're not going to go on Numista, World Coin Gallery, some of these other places. They're looking for something easy. So you learn some of those lessons. The longer you get, the more shows you go to, the more coins you look at, the more stuff you price out. You realize, oh gosh, you know, that wasn't worth what I paid. That's the cost of education. That's your tuition in numismatic university. I would second everything Jeff just said. You know, Jeff, you were talking about some of the professional difficulties that you can encounter in the hobby. And and earlier in this conversation, we talked about how, you know, it's easy to feel sort of out of one's depth at times. And I know that I've certainly been feeling that way for the past couple of years, because when you stop being just a casual collector who happened to have started writing for Coin World, which is what I was, and you become someone who is existing in the hobby professionally, you not only have a professional profile, and that profile is largely composed of the work that you do, you have a professional profile that is essentially a, an accumulation of the work, you know, not only of the work that you've done, but of the connections that you make. And I've certainly met some some great people through the hobby, and I certainly appreciate the ability to talk to you know, we were lucky, Jeff, to have Ken Bressett come on the podcast, for example. And mm-hmm. that's a name that is almost instantly familiar to most, if not all, American numismatists, at least those who use the Red Book, which I think all or most do. And, you know, being able to talk to someone who wrote the book on a topic, whatever that topic is, is really wonderful. And that's part of the reason that the podcast has been so enjoyable. But like anyone entering the professional world for the first time, I had a few walls that I had to crash through to get to the point that I'm at now. There are plenty of mistakes and I've written plenty of corrections in my first couple of years. And, you know, Jeff, you and I talk about this all the time. You know, that can be tremendously difficult because, you know, I, I take pains to be accurate in the things that I write. I want to get the story right and I want to communicate clearly, accurately and effectively. But, you know, there are days when you fall short of that. And there are lessons to be learned from each one of those experiences, whether it's fine tuning your own work habits, whether it's figuring out what the proper reference volume to consult is. There are a number of different ways to fix those issues and to try to, you know, get it right the next time, which is, I think, the best sort of mantra to adopt in response to mistakes that are made. But that can be tremendously difficult. And I've also had to reckon with the reality of writing for an audience, because in a history class in college, when I was assigned a 20 page term paper, it could be a little bit daunting at first. But what I really enjoyed about the process of writing a term paper was you get a topic, whatever topic it is that you are either assigned or you choose. And the way that I always approached it was I just dedicated myself to learning about the topic for, for a couple of weeks, however long a period, the, whenever the paper was assigned to whenever it was due, I would take that time and just try to explore a topic. I would go to all of the relevant um, academic databases and I would try to, you know, I'd go through Trinity's library to try to find the right books. And then I would look in the back of the books for the notes. I would go through sort of a standard research process. And over the course of it, you know, a thesis would sort of reveal itself to me. I would say, okay, there's a point that I can make here based on if I structure my argument a certain way and I use certain kinds of evidence. I can make certain kinds of arguments and some arguments are more plausible and defensible than others. But at the end of the day, if you were able to defend your argument reasonably well, you turn it into the professor, the professor reads over your paper and assigns you a grade. It's relatively straightforward. You're writing for an audience of one. So if you haven't sort of examined the full historiography of your topic, that's okay. It's a term paper. It's relatively low stakes. Moving into a professional publishing role was really challenging because instead of just sort of a free form, not totally free form, but instead of sort of a freewheeling exploration of a topic where if you can substantiate an argument, you're going to do pretty well, whether or not that argument is in line with what that discipline happens to think about whatever topic you're writing on, 
I found that then writing for numismatics, people scrutinize your writing a lot more. And I realized, okay, I've really got to, you know, rededicate myself to, you know, to researching these things as thoroughly as possible. And if you mess up a detail or if you get a date wrong, you know, someone, someone's going to notice that. And in an academic environment, that's not as important because in the grand scheme of a 20 page paper, you know, small things like that are, you know, usually are, are allowed to slide, but it's a much more rigorous standard in some ways operating in this industry. And so adjusting myself to that standard has definitely been a challenge. It's a challenge that I'm glad that I'm being forced to overcome because in overcoming it, I think that, you know, that process makes one a better writer and a better researcher and a better numismatist. So, you know, every wall that I crash through, I try to tell myself that that was something that I needed to learn. Right. So, but that is difficult. And then there are times when not based on any factual reason, but based on purely political or ideological reasons, someone takes issue with something that I've written. And I've been, I don't know that I would characterize what I've gotten as hate mail, pretty close to hate mail, when people have disagreed in almost always long ideological or political lines with an argument that I've made. It's a little bit frustrating if it doesn't contain a factual refutation. It's like, well, I try to, if I'm reporting news, I try to keep it straight down the middle. But Sometimes it's fun to play with an idea and to see how some of the topics of our day relate to the history of these notes and what we can learn about the history, whether it's the history of systems of oppression, whether it's the history of monetary development. You can learn a great deal by studying these things. And it's a little bit frustrating when people come at you with vitriol instead of with sort of reasoned arguments and with a different perspective, because I love a debate and I can absolutely respect an honest and respectful debate. But Every once in a while, when you're writing for a large audience, that doesn't really happen. So those have definitely been things that I've found challenging that have been, if not discouraging, you know, they've at least been challenges that I've needed to overcome. So then extrapolating upon what you just said here, and obviously that uh, with this and earlier in this one, and as well as in just about every podcast I've ever listened to, you understand the importance of the reference materials and then the books and uh, the works that are out there. And there are plenty of them for everyone. But do either of you see yourself ever writing a book? Hmm. I w- would love to, in a sense. Um, you know, it's not something the current arrangement really facilitates. I, you know, have enough on my plate with uh, the weekly and monthly duties and the podcast. And there's a couple topics that I'd love to explore. There's a lot of topics that have already been explored or our, you know, exploration is underway. It's certainly in the realm of possibility. However, I will say that not a whole book, but I, I have partaken in, and I have it now in my, uh, to borrow the phrase, formerly nicotine-stained hands, uh, the Coin Rolled Almanac, 8th edition, and there were about six chapters in here that I wrote. So I do have right inside under, by the editorial staff of Coin Rolled, Seven down or one up from the, uh, as far as the coin world staff goes, uh, my name is in, in the book as credit for participating, but, but a whole book by myself, maybe eventually, uh, I know that wherever the hobby takes me, uh, I love it. And I want to be participate as a lifelong, uh, be a lifelong participant. And that is why I've built my numismatic library the way I have, so that uh, I have as many resources as possible. There certainly um, would never rule it out. I would absolutely love to write a book. Uh, my my long-term ambition is to get a PhD in some form of monetary history. And over the course of my graduate school work, I'm hoping to, I mean, in order to get a PhD, generally speaking, you have to write a dissertation. 
So whatever dissertation I end up writing could become a book in its own right. I know that some people do eventually turn their dissertations into larger research works that sometimes manifest as books. But in general, yeah, I would absolutely love to eventually write a book. I'm like Jeff, I'm in the process of, you know, tracking down all of the available books, articles from academic journals. Uh, I'm trying to cultivate primary sources and and identify primary sources, um, mainly archives that could be valuable for telling any number of interesting numismatic stories. So yes, as a, as a short answer to your question, yes, at some point in my life, I would absolutely love to write a book. I'd love to read the books. I mean, definitely. I'm reading the Coin World Almanac 8th edition anyway, so I'm already starting to read Jeff's book, but uh, I'd love to read your book, Chris. But uh, you know, I really do appreciate it. I mean, I know the value that can be found in these books right here. And uh, let's let's wrap it up. Uh, you tell me uh, if you can think of a couple of books that a beginning collector should have in their collection to start building up a collection of books. Chris, you're a beginning collector in some senses. So <laughs> you start um, and then I'll add to it. No, no, absolutely. So there are, it's funny you ask this, Larry, because uh, for I actually just finished writing a couple of page article on on the, the process of building a, a numismatic library. So I had to sort of think about that process. So it's it's not totally fresh in my mind, but it's at least been on my mind recently. Starting from the numismatic book dealers that I've spoken with, one of the best strategies is to buy the red book and sort of the standard reference volumes for whatever series you're interested in and kind of work back because most of those books, whether it's the red book or uh, a standard reference volume, will have notes that will refer you back to either other books or primary sources or whatever material the authors consulted are going to be in the notes section in the back, which you can then, if you follow the sort of breadcrumb trail there, you know, you'll find more resources, which in turn will probably direct you to other resources. So as far as books that I found really helpful, I don't tend to read the reference works unless I'm writing something specifically about the series. Um, though I did read for one of my recent uh, book recommendation segments on the show, I did talk about David Lang's um, The Complete Guide to Lincoln Sense which especially the history section, I just found really fascinating and useful uh, in addition to, you know, a catalog of major varieties and a lot of other really valuable information. So seeking out standard reference works, I know that I enjoyed, we interviewed Bill Eckberg recently, um, his recent book on Half Sense, um, I found really, really interesting and entertaining, just a, generally a good read. Um, and then I recommend this book every chance I get because I just have really, I really enjoyed it and it changed the way that I approach numismatics. And that's Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America by Michael O'Malley. I mentioned him earlier in this uh, in this interview. That's a fantastic book on money. I've just started cracking into a book called The Genealogy of American Finance, which tracks the development of a number of American financial institutions and the sort of monetary instruments that they issued and other sort of artifacts related to their development. Um, that's by another podcast guest, Robert Wright. I also would encourage people in general to seek out books that are that deal with money in some form, but aren't necessarily numismatic volumes. Because I think it's not that this is a criticism of people who who focus on one series, because I think that specialization can be a really important part of a lot of people's hobby journey. But I would encourage people to try to broaden how they think about money, because that's some of the greatest enjoyment that I've gotten out of my professional experience with the hobby is sort of broadening my horizons and looking at money not just as a series of objects to collect, but as a reflection of the society that produced it. And I think there's a lot of really, there are a lot of really fascinating books in that realm that I have either read and, and really enjoyed or I'm looking forward to reading. The, um, the starter set, if you will, for every collector based in the United States is the Red Book, 
the Friedberg Paper Money Book. That's Paper Money of the United States by Arthur L. and Ira S. Friedberg. And the Standard Catalog of World Coins. You could start with the 1901 to 2000 volume. You could add the 1801 to 1900 volume. And then if you so choose to go either direction, there's the current century. There's also those books back to 1600. So 1601, 1701, 1801, 1901, 2001. So that six volume work gives you a group of four books that are very accessible and sort of good beginner level, just lots of neat information about thinking about and how to approach ancient Greek and Roman coins. Then if you get beyond that, I mean, if you want to talk about general titles that sort of speak to the romance of numismatics, Elvira Klein Stefanelli, and I think her husband, Vladimir, did The Beauty and Lore of Coins, Currency, and Metals. There's um, Money of the World, Coins That Made History, I think it is, that was based on the Millennia Collection, which was sold by Ira and Larry Goldberg, who we interviewed on the show, uh, speaking about the collection that's usually on display in, in Long Beach. So there's several books like that. Fractional Money by Carruthers talks about coins that are not a dollar, but all the all the things that are fractions of a dollar. It's not, you know, at first glance you think, oh, we're talking about fractional paper money. Well, no, that's not the case at all. It's it's about these small denomination coins. It really just depends on. Uh, it's like penny whimsy. You might not specialize in large sense, but the way Sheldon writes about collecting and everything, you know, he really captures some of the romance that draws so many people to the hobby. So, gosh, I wish I were standing uh, right next to my my bookshelves, which cover the wall in the living room. You know, you name a title and can point to something that um, speaks to, to the story that it tells and, and why it's important. But those are probably, you know, the the basics, um, you know, the must-haves, the beginners, the absolute bare minimum. I would say for every year that you've been collecting, you need to get five to 20 books. Just, you know, the, I just made that up. It's just, but you you need to buy books and be well-rounded. And of course, it depends on what you're going to, if you're going to focus on VAMs, well, then you need the Van Allen and Malice book. Uh, and you can have the top 100 VAMs. You can have the cherry pickers guide because, you know, I mean, there's different ways to approach that. There's, there's special books just on VAMs and just on the 1921 piece dollar. And just, on, you know, so you can get as narrow as you want. You can go as wide as you want. I go as wide as I want. I bought a book at the flea market uh, last year on paper money of sutlers. Sutlers were the the merchants that traveled the uh, around following the soldiers in the Civil War. And here's this, you know, I've never handled one of these before in my life, but the guy it was like 30 bucks. I'm like, okay, cool. I can use that eventually. And I can learn something from this that expands my knowledge. It's going to serve me for hopefully 30, 30 years or more. There's a serendipity to both coin collecting and assembling a numismatic library where every once in a while you'll just happen upon either someone who you didn't expect to have any coins or any books about coins, or you'll happen to stumble on the coin, the note, or the book about coins and notes. 
according to Ornotes, that you happen to need. So there, the, the, those moments of serendipity are always really nice. Absolutely. So. I mean, I, I'll never forget. I was in a small town in Ohio. I'm not going to say where, because I don't want any good deals to be <laughs> snatched up. But there was this little <laughs> bookstore there. And I went in and I want to, hey, do you have anything on numismatics? That's like coin collecting. Oh yeah, back here, point back, and and there's the usual flotsam and jetsam of of various uh, annual price guides and different you know stuff that's mass market. Nothing you know, and and as is usually the case in, in some of these settings, way overpriced. I'm sorry, uh, a 1972 red book is not worth eight dollars. I mean, or ten dollars or whatever. Even in you know, not when there's hundreds of thousands of these out there and but but anyway there it was walter breen's encyclopedia and i did not own that at the time and i want to say it was 15 dollars or 18 dollars it was some ridiculously cheap sum that is all day long a 75 dollar book i couldn't get that thing in my hands fast enough for that price and you know as problematic as breen is as a researcher and and uh, you know more importantly as a, as a human that is a book that should be part of a collection, should be part of a, a numismatic library for what it informs us, both through what is in the pages and what's not on the pages. You know, there there are things I remember when I started at CoinWorld and editor Beth Deicher, you know, she cautioned, look, you know, you can use Breen, but understand that oftentimes he would make suppositions or fill in the gaps with, you know, and, and sometimes he turned out to be right. But Basically, the caution was use it, but make sure that you consult with uh, an expert, you know, double check that we don't know more now uh, or he didn't get it wrong in some form or fashion in making that leap of, oh, well, if it's not this and it's not this, then it must be that. So, you know, it's it's a must have, but it's not, you know, it's not a must use in the sense, right? You know, it's it's something that you should have. It's sort of marks you as a serious collector, but you also acknowledge that, hey, there are other books that offer some information that's um, more certitude behind it. Well, you have served as unwitting accomplices in my production of a want list for those who are looking to buy from me for the holidays. And for that, I appreciate your efforts here. And I want to thank you for your time because now I've just got to disseminate this list and make sure that the volumes start flowing in here. So as usual, I do appreciate it. Got a lot more questions, so don't be surprised if I don't bug you down the road somewhere. Well, we'll be very excited to answer any questions that you have. I know that we really enjoy recording these segments and then talking to you about this. And I hope, I hope and believe that the listeners enjoy it as well. Yeah, this is always fun. And uh, Chris and I like to hear ourselves talk. So uh, getting getting to be on the other side of the questions is fun. Good deal. Okay. Hope you got something to work with. (laughs) All right. All right. Cool. Thanks so much, Larry. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the CoinWorld email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.